Hello, welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast to discuss border-related legal issues. You can find us at borderlines.ca, B-O-R-D-E-R-L-I-N-E-S.ca. We will include links uh, to any cases or other documents that we refer to during the podcast. I'm Stephen Murins, joined here with Peter Edelman and Danny Willits. And Danny, as we were trying to pin down your background with Citizenship and Immigration Canada, we realized that it would be easier to just ask you to explain and to summarize your uh, history with the department. Okay. Uh, Basically, I I started as a decision maker and finished as a supervisor, but sort of in between, I got to wear a variety of different hats. So I was justice liaison, intelligence liaison, uh, national trainer, visa officer. I acted as a director and as a manager on a couple occasions, and I did some policy work in Ottawa on projects. And that's over which years? Oh, God, 25. 25 years. Yeah. Then you travel with that, different countries? Well, India. India? Because I did the visa officer thing in Chandigarh. And in Vancouver, you were also a supervisor at CIC Hornby? Yes. Oh, and travel, like, I I went all across Canada, but, uh, you know, overseas, only India. What does a supervisor do? Um, uh, That's a good question. Um, Basically, I'm responsible for ensuring that um, officers are making appropriate decisions, that they're trained, that they're mentored. Uh, Now, they're the delegated authority, so I couldn't overturn a decision, but if I would see a pattern of problematic decisions, then it would be back to the drawing board with training. Um, A lot of what I did was supervising the client services unit and then the Olympic unit that did the the hiring for employers. So a lot of that was... um, coordinating our outreach, I ran the front counter, I, for a little while, ran the call center. Um, It it was just a lot of uh, supporting the staff, I guess, was basically, in my mind, was my my first priority. I've always been curious about that, with with respect to, when you see a decision that is just a ridiculous decision in your view, but is granting status to a person, is there anything the minister can do? I know in the citizenship context, they'll, they'll judicially review the citizenship judge's decisions, but I, I'm just wondering if there's any, is there any remedy in the, in the department for that kind of situation? They would have to go to federal court. There are a couple cases like that where, you know, and we would occasionally, it was very interesting actually, because occasionally there were decisions that we would refuse that became very high media profile, and yet the decision was still and I could give examples, but that would take way too long. Um, but it would be refused over and over again with, with really good decision makers, valid justification, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way the minister could overturn that decision would be to request a second application that would go straight to, or a third or a fourth application that would go straight to Ottawa and then someone there would make the positive decision that the minister wanted. When I was there, that may have changed, but... But I'm talking about positive decisions. So if you have an officer... So, so the minister would judicially review a decision by a minister's delegate. The minister's representative would, if 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 it came to their, if it came to light. So it would be the minister of citizenship and immigration versus the minister of citizenship and immigration. Yeah, which is why they didn't do it very often. You'd see the same thing in CBSA occasionally. Oh, I've never seen. It. Okay, that's so, that's interesting. Sorry, I just, well, we were I, one I department, right? We were the, one department back. Yeah. Then. So I guess now it would be the minister of CBSA that would challenge the. The decision. Um, it depends on. It, it, they they don't like to do it very often. It would have. I, I don't think I saw it maybe more than once or twice in twenty five years because it's exactly what you said. It's like the minister of immigration challenging the minister of immigration. Another question I've always had actually is: is if an officer's decision is set aside, does like a supervisor like yourself go down and sit down with the officer and say, "What's going on here?" Or, "Hey, here's a legal principle that you might need to have some brushing up on." Well, it would depend again. Um, I, I did a lot more of that as justice liaison too, because that's what I did. I would decide whether, you know, who to give it back to or whether we should proceed with the case through federal court or just set it aside before it got to federal court. So, um, it would depend on the issue. If, if it was a good decision, it would probably just go to another officer. Now, we did do a lot of case conferencing. Um, as a training thing that would be ideally we, we tried to keep it to general issues and we, we but but there were things that we, we would get in a pattern and one of the things that came up for a while was um, people were trying to avoid removal or refusals on HMC 
based on uh, very timely uh, medical issues, like mental medical issues. And, but it would be, it would be very, very self-serving. But it was because officers aren't doctors, it was difficult to know how to do that. So we took that as a general issue um, to the Department of Justice and we said we'd like to, you know, have the opportunity to, to look at this and, and can we refute it and how do we refute it and does it need to go to medical services and so things like that. We try to keep it to general issues, but, but that, you know, there's a lot of, um, case law to support the fact that the delegated decision maker's decision is final and then that of course got tempered by some of the federal court decisions on functus but for the most part they tried not to go back once the decision was made and so it, it wouldn't be a good decision it would be more if somebody was missing elements on decisions a newer officer that I might sit down and say I've noticed a pattern here and you know we probably need to do a little more training on this or whatever yeah um, and then I guess the other question that always comes up is we hear different officers will put it different. Some say they're going to go seek guidance from their supervisor. Others will say, I'm going to go ask my supervisor what decision to make. When you were doing it and somebody was approaching you with, um, I guess, guidance or wanting your feedback on a decision before it was made, did you view what you were recommending as binding or just suggested? Never recommended. Me, I never recommend it. I, I might say, tell me what your thoughts are on the case. I might say, have you considered this or have you looked at this? What, what I used to find is once I talked to an officer about it, there were some officers that were really insecure about their own decisions. But usually once they came in and explained the case to me and I said, what way are you leaning and tell me why, they had it, right? Because yeah. that's what we do. That's what we did or that's what I did. And, and I, I was a fairly confident decision maker in before I became a supervisor and, and you know, one of the things the department challenges with is how do you hire critical thinkers, right? Like, it's a difficult thing. So when I would have new officers, for example, I remember one very bright young officer who said to me, you know, I, I, I need an answer. And I said, there's no answers. There's no answers. You're making discretionary decisions. That's your job. So you have to take a stance and you have to support it. And in the training on HNC, we would take a really borderline case and we'd have people do it and and you'd have people land on both sides of the yeah. fence and and that's just the way it is so which is like now that i'm on your side one of the frustrating <laughs> things i deal with but yeah. you know so it's all it's all about being able to support your case so some of the training we did for example with doj we did um finding a fact training we did legal writing training so so things like learned how to support our own decision but never what decision to make okay and it do you ever have, as an adjudicator, because um, we were talking about this uh, a little while ago with uh, um, with Sherry Jordan, uh, Sherilyn Jordan, uh, about whether there are certain things that just can't be adjudicated or are very difficult to adjudicate. Like, for example, sexual orientation. How do you decide if someone's actually gay? How do you decide if someone's yeah. actually, uh, you know, what their sexual orientation is and whether it's true? Um, and in some cases, you can expose lies or you can expose misrepresentations. But in terms of actually assessing something like that, and we see that a lot with genuineness of relationships, where you, oh, you try and figure yeah. out yeah. whether or not a relationship is genuine. And, and I've seen, I mean, I can say just from my own practice, I, I remember I had one couple, they were from two completely different cultures. They were 10 years apart. Um, they spoke different languages. Both of them needed an English interpreter to be able to do, to fill in the forms. And I was quite skeptical of the relationship up until the last, it was actually the last day they were in my office and they had to send, we, we needed the check to send the 550 filing fee. Right. And she was like, well, did you bring the checkbook? And he's like, oh, I forgot the checkbook. And she, all she did was, ah, it was this sigh of exasperation that <laughs> only that yeah. only comes from a genuine relationship. Yeah. In, in the sense that yeah. there is, and but otherwise on paper, I, I don't know how I would have assessed this relationship. Ultimately, CIC got it right. They did it. They did an interview, and and CIC yeah. got it right from my perspective, my assessment of this, yeah. of, that it was a genuine relationship. And I recently heard from them. It's almost ten years later. They're still together. Uh, so in that sense, I think CIC did get it right in that particular case. But what 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 was your sense in terms of how do you adjudicate things like that? 
It, it's kind of interesting because you almost you almost have to just develop much probably as you guys do this sort of gut instinct, and then you you kind of take it from there. So if there's something that feels wrong, then you have to dig a little more in that. And and interviews help. Um, you have to become. I, I really noticed this when I was a visa officer. You have to become an expert on all sorts of different things and very quickly. So, you know, you have to become an expert on sexual orientation. You have to become an expert on relationships with different cultures. You have to, and, and then you have to go beyond that. Um, you, you know, I've been on both sides. I, I did three years of marriage investigations. That was the best way was to do an investigation, like go into somebody's home at 7.30 in the morning and, you know, see who was there and what was in the medicine cabinet and all that stuff. But they don't do that very often yeah. anymore. So, so you really do develop this instinct and sometimes, um, you have to let it sit for a little bit. Uh, talk about sexual orientation. We had one that was first sponsored by his wife and then was sponsored by his boyfriend. And, you know, I, I remember the officer so saying to him when she was interviewing him, so like, when did you decide you were gay? Because you had a wife before, right? So, and you make mistakes, and you know you make mistakes, and you're going to live with that. And, uh, like, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Hopefully you get it more right than wrong. Yep. That talk that uh, Peter was referring to with Cheryl and Jordan, uh, for those who don't know, is a great podcast that we recorded earlier. Uh, Sherilyn is a professor at SFU who uh, makes a lot of submissions to Parliament on LGBT QI uh, refugee matters and we recorded it and I managed to delete it accidentally the day after recording so we're hoping to have her back on soon um, but just um, segueing now to two specific issues that uh, we talked about um, that arise from three cases at the federal court uh, over the last week two of the cases are called Jang one is from Nukla and I'll do the most recent Jang case and it's a decision involving postgraduate work permits which uh, is a the postgraduate work permit program lets people who have studied full-time in Canada and certain programs to get a work permit for an equivalent or in some cases longer duration than their period of study and there's been some uncertainty over what the definition of full-time student is on the Immigration Refugees and Citizenship Canada at various points it says that the schools will generally decide what full-time means in this case, though, uh, an officer disagreed with the school, refused the postgraduate work permit application, and the federal court said that it's actually up to the officer to determine what the de definition of full-time study is. So I guess my question to you arising out of this case, um, which I know has some of the consultants who work at different post-secondary schools up in arms, is presumably the government or the department when it creates policy has ideas in mind as to how they want the law to well, let's even backtrack before we ask that question most officers do they view themselves as immigrate as implementing or administering or interpreting the immigration and refugee protection act or immigration programs created by government absolutely the act yeah. I have no hesitation in saying that. Where it becomes a little bit complicated is where the act is open to interpretation. Okay. And in cases like that, and this this really came to a head when IRPA was introduced. Um, IRPA is the acronym for the Sorry, the Immigration yeah. Refugee Protection Act. I'm assuming all your listeners know this. <laughs> uh, okay. It's a wide audience. In, in, anyhow, um, it, it came to a head when the training was being done because the department was telling us that the act would say one thing and some of us would be disagreeing. So when it comes to a case like that where it's open to interpretation, what tends to happen is even as an officer, if you may disagree with the interpretation, if the department has told you to interpret it in a certain way, you go with that because they still pay your salary and, you know, if it's open to, and, and you figure that what will happen is that federal court will clarify and that, that happens. But I know as a trainer that we trained on legislation. I also know as someone who's worked in Ottawa and who has worked as a trainer, you don't always know who's writing those policy announcements. Like, for example, um, the old manuals that are now archived, a lot of them were written by summer students out of university with less than, less than lengthy experience with the department. So, you know, I I considered myself someone who was very familiar with the legislation and my, my instructions and also to the people that I teach at UBC is read the act first, then read the policy. 
And, and then as long as you're happy, because there's, there's all sorts of mistakes on the website too. There are, yes. there are mistakes that are actually in disagreement with the legislation. So where, where it's out and out wrong. And I found a few of them myself and, you know, you can report those back, but I always go to the legislation and then the policy and, and I tell on both yeah. sides, I've told people to do that. Well, and that actually directly leads into the other two cases. The, I guess the second John case was one that we talked about uh, with uh, when Marilyn Sanford was here. And that's a case where uh, the federal, so a person had visitor status in Canada. Right. They'd arrived. Uh, CBSA stamped their passport. They get to stay for six months. And they then apply to extend their status. And during the period that they're on implied status, as well as I think into the extended period, because their extension application was granted, they took a short-term course. Um, and the CIC website, or the IRCC website, says that if you want to take a short-term course, you have to do it in the period that you're authorized to be in Canada. The regulations themselves say the period after six months, the period granted during your entry to Canada, which is a subtle distinction. Right. But in this case, the court found that the, an officer was reasonable in uh, determining that the person had studied without authorization by completing this short term course during the extension. It's clearly not, or maybe I'm wrong in terms of who's writing the website. But I would have thought in a case like that, that even if the decision is legally right, and as you were saying, the principle of functus, or, you know, the decision is final, is there ever any consideration in the department that would say, well, okay, legally our officer was right. We have a problem here with our website, which to this day, I checked this morning, still hasn't been updated. Yeah, and if it was a legacy person, it used to, be, it used to read differently. It used to talk about you couldn't extend and complete a course upon the extension. Okay. They've changed that. So uh, you could have had somebody that that had read the old, I, I think it's even in the old archive student manual, you may be able to find something along those lines. But um, I, I think the courts, as long as the officer is making a legally correct decision, I don't think they could change it. Would the department do so? I, I, I don't know you. It, yeah, it's interesting because I'm not sure that the court knew that the regulation had changed. I, I, no, I'm it is the regulation. The regulation I think it's didn't the manual change. Changed. It was manual that changed. Oh, the manual. The manual changed. used to be much clearer on that situation, and I find I don't like the current website. Sorry, ex colleagues. Um, <laughs> I, I even know my colleagues that that my ex colleagues have don't like it. Have difficulty finding things. I love the manuals. It was all in one place. You know, everything was was there, but they had difficulty keeping them up to date, and that was. That's why they went to the web-based. Okay, and I mean, so the other example... Well, I think that the manuals, and, and just in terms of what we were talking about before, um, I think it's important in terms of the way the courts deal with it, is that the manuals are seen by the courts as being what's called soft law. Right. So in other words, the, the directions uh, with respect to criteria to consider on uh, humanitarian compassion applications or uh, Section 44, uh, like reports when you're reporting somebody for inadmissibility right. when they're a permanent resident, um, the criteria that have been set out in the manuals have been integrated into the law in what's referred to as a soft law that, makes sense. Uh, that the, the department can give some direction to officers as a whole, that this is how things ought to be interpreted. And with the website changing the way it has, um, it's unclear to me, yeah. because what happened in this case is that the court was not willing to consider that to be soft law, um, or considered that the, the officer's choice not to follow the soft law was acceptable, because the regulation supported the officer's interpretation. But with the deference the greater and greater deference from the courts. I'm wondering from the perspective of the officers in the visa post or in the processing center, when the court says something like we've seen the court of appeal say in cases recently, this is one reasonable interpretation. There may be other reasonable interpretations. Right. We're going to defer to the officers. What does an officer do when the courts say there's two reasonable interpretations of this? You choose. You know, honestly, um, 
it's really difficult to speak about a decision maker given the wide range of decision makers you have. Uh, my preference was always, as I said earlier, that, that they check the legislation first and always defer to the legislation over and above, as you call it, soft law. But there are other decision makers who probably don't refer to the legislation nearly as much as they should. I, I think there's a lot of case law in this whole business on great deference to the decision maker because they don't want to hamper that discretionary nature of the decision making, particularly on certain types of cases. I, I think they would probably, um, in, in the old days, in the good old days when I was supervising, um, we would have probably discussed it as a as sort of a, a general case conferencing discussion type of thing. But I think um, from my perspective, and I can only go from there, I would always insist that the officer err on the side of legally correct as opposed to policy correctness. That's my own personal. And in terms of interpreting those sections, those discussions would happen. And then, uh, and we see this from officers when officers are confused. And, and I, we see this coming out in, the, in uh, a lot of the access to information requests that people like Steve and others, uh, others among us collect where you see questions going up the, up the chain right. to Ottawa and then coming back down with a policy answer. This is how we interpret yeah. this section. This yeah. is how we... Um, Often several months later after the decision's been made. I know, and in the meantime, you, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but you kind of flounder and do the best you can. I, I mean, I can, I can think of several that have gone up and one that I've been looking at recently, which I, I'm digressing a little bit, but where somebody on a work permit or a study permit leaves and re-enters and they, you know, the decision came down that they have then lost the right to study or work. I always disagreed with that interpretation when I, when I read the legislation. Um, but ultimately that was what the lawyers came out with. And, and interestingly enough, they're, they didn't all agree, but that was ultimately what they agreed to come down on an operational bulletin. So how is that different from the fettering of discretion that you were talking about earlier? You were saying that you didn't want to fetter your officer's discretion. And I'm just wondering how you, as a supervisor, how you see that as being different. I'm, I don't know that I would necessarily represent your average CIC or IRC. I'm not, I was never IRCC employee. I do see that as fettering. Um, I, but it was a, it was a legal, a departmental legal interpretation, I guess. And, and when it comes down to that, sometimes you just have to, but it is fettering to a degree. But I, I mean, I'm not sure it's in the context of a general administrative law, it's problematic. But I'm not sure, as I asked earlier, do they view themselves as administering the act or as um, Canada's immigration program? And so I think maybe the, the final case that I was going to bring up will illustrate my next point, And that's Nukala, another postgraduate work permit case. And in that case, the issue is a rather controversial one lately, and it's whether you can restore to a postgraduate work permit. So as I said before, a postgraduate work permit, if you've been studying full time, you can get a work permit for an equal number of uh, duration that you studied, if not longer. One of the requirements of applying for the postgraduate work permit is that you have to have a valid study permit at the time you apply. So what's been happening is either people apply late past those, uh, past when they don't have a study permit, and you have to apply within 90 days of completing yeah. your study. Or more common, their application bounces because they didn't check something or they missed a fee. At that point, it becomes very confusing as to can this person, most work permits you can restore if you show that you still meet program requirements because the person will now often get their returned application back they no longer have a valid study permit, and it's been more than 90 days since they graduated. One way of looking at it is that it's impossible to restore to that work permit. However, and that is certainly one interpretation that when reading the regs one could get, is that it just can't be done. The other is on the IRCC website, and it says that... Uh, in these circumstances, an individual can re restore to a work permit if they were a student and they meet the eligibility requirements of the work permit at the time, or in some training manuals that we got through Access to Information Act, they can even restore to student and then apply for a work permit. It's 
clear the department is trying to facilitate mm-hmm. people being able to get these work permits. Mm-hmm. However, in that case, in Nukala, the federal court sided with an officer who said not possible. And I guess my question then is, well, it, would it even be bad if they... so? A, how does the, the, the department, the department has a program that it's trying to administer. Yeah. Is it necessarily the case that officers should have such a wide range of discretion or should the department be able to dictate, listen, these are our programs, especially where the postgraduate work permit is a creation of public policy. Um, I'm not so sure that, I guess my point would be, I'm not so sure that administrative law and the principles necessarily always fit well in the immigration context. But also in a situation like that, where it's clear that the department is trying to facilitate something, would they go to their officer, say, and say, listen, we understand why you made the decision that you did based on the laws. It's written. That's one reasonable interpretation. But we really need it to be interpreted a different way. And we really are trying to get it. And we have that both through your training and what's on our website. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's two issues in that case. And one is, did he meet the criteria for post-grad, i.e. the 90 days and the, and the other is, could you restore to a different status or could you restore to that status and then give somebody the second one? So I I think the decision of the federal court was correct in that one because he no longer met the post-grad requirements. He was beyond the 90 days. If Right. But I guess the, so there's two, there's two. So I think the decision was correct. Um, and I would have made the same decision based on that particular part of it. Could you restore somebody to a student and then give them a work permit? I think I think it's pretty clear that you can. And um, should it have been should it have been done in that case? I don't know. I mean, I, he would have been refused anyways. To my way of thinking, he should have been refused. I mean, I may be in disagreement yeah. with you. Maybe <laughs> Peter wants to step in on that case. So you mean in terms of, I'm just trying to figure out what you're thinking in terms of restoring someone to a student. This, you're saying well, artificially this, restore him to being a student. And so he can get so his post-grad can, work permit. So that he then qualifies for the post-grad work permit, even though he's outside the 90 days uh, after having completed his studies? He, yeah, he was no longer he was no longer on a valid student study permit, and he was beyond the 90 days. And the reason he was beyond the 90 days was he chose to go on holiday. But but I'm trying to understand what the restoration of student status would get him because he'd still well, be outside the 90 days. Well, that's kind of my point. It wouldn't get him anything. So because no, but his so, problem was that he was outside the 90 days, and that's that's the part for me with respect yeah, to this decision. Agree that he was outside the 90 days. The restoration of status was never meant to restore you back to the time before a lock-in or before right. a. Uh, I think that except that the website the and the manual specifically content. So I mean. The postgraduate work permit is a creation, I guess like part of my problem with the decision is the postgraduate work permit is a creation of public policy. So this whole the 90 day rule after graduation and that the study permit has to be valid. Those are both created by the minister. I would have thought that the rest of the website that is also related to the postgraduate work permit can all be read as part of that same public policy where the rules are adjusted so that people have access to the program. Because no, why? Why I, would the, the website? Regs. It's not the regs. It's the website. It's the no, it's I the postgraduate it. work permit access to that program, which is a creation of public policy. The regs don't mention the postgraduate work permit. No, program. but the regs give the minister the ability to create public policy. Right. Which which is soft law, in my opinion, where the minister has created public policy. Right. Well, I'm not. I, I think it's a bit different than soft. Like, as okay. in, I think it's. I I think the public policy. Um, much like ministerial instructions, are they're unclear as to what that what those things are <laughs> in the sense that ministerial yeah. instructions are actual law, in the sense that a ministerial instruction is essentially the same as a reg. It just right. it just comes about in a different way, and I think the public policy in the way that it's drafted and in the way that it's enabled by the legislation is the closest thing we had to ministerial instructions before ministerial instructions. I agree. And so it's a bit different than writing things in a manual which is not authorized by the legislation. So like when you, you talk about the legislation saying you can make public policy or you can make these exemptions or you can have these temporary stays of removals for certain classes or whatever it is, the definition of those classes, once it's announced, 
this class of people from this country are get the temporary stay of removals, that becomes law. I think that's yeah, law. That's I think it's, what I was trying to uh, say, but you say it so much better. So, yeah. <laughs> no, but the creation, like, so a public policy, I think for the work permits that are created for, by public policy, the courts, and here the court too, almost treats it as law. Like you can't, well, the is. policy says that you have to do it within the period on your study permit, so you have to do it within the period of your study permit. What I don't understand is why further down when they talk about restoring to a postgraduate work permit, that also wouldn't form part of this quasi-law, like why they're able to pick and choose which part of the website forms part of the policy and which parts don't. I that think what are they're saying is you can restore within the 90 days. Or if they're not saying that, that's what they mean by it. Because that 90 days is, is part of the criteria to obtain a post-grad work permit. So right. if for whatever reason the student goes out of step status as a student within that 90 days, then I could see restoring to a student and giving them a work permit. And I had done things like that when I was working. But once it's past the 90 days, then it's... So in the more common situation, it would be that you apply and then it bounces 90 days later because it takes two to three months often to process. That I have a problem with and I don't know what the solution is. That That's... Yeah, I mean, maybe the facts of this case, but that's where the website yeah. and the manuals What's interesting is our office has gotten consents on similar cases yeah. using those policies and saying this is what's intended, which is why we were surprised when this uh, decision came out. Well, I think, well, I I think the one you're talking about where it's bounced back because they've missed some little thing, I think that's a lot different than someone who went on vacation knowingly and came back. Like that's, a, to me, a different... But I think following this decision, I think the solution to the problem that you're raising in terms of the bounced application is that the solution is not to reapply in terms of restoration but to seek a reconsideration of the bouncing. Because if you seek a reconsideration of the bouncing of the application, the date of the application stands. becomes stands yeah. at the time if you successfully bounced. get it reconsidered. Well, just like if you successfully get a restoration, but I'm just saying that it's the restoration. But restoration, like reconsideration is unbelievably discretionary. Restoration is um, just significantly discretionary. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, but I mean, reconsideration, I would think most, and maybe most officers would still view that they want to see a mistake in the initial decision before they reconsider. Yeah. Um, which would be the difference. Yeah. Especially, I would say, especially in this day and age, I, I mean, there were certain things that, you know, when you had access to a local office, you didn't want to see somebody penalized because they did something really dumb like forgot to sign a form or something and if you could personally could find a way to correct that but you're my my uh, ear to the ground tells me you're going to see more centralization rather than less um, I've heard that re regions are going to be reduced even more and to me that means less access so that I, I, I want a, a quick little thing because my my um, biggest frustration with the department is that they define client service rather than asking clients what client service is. And for, for the department, client service means getting things on the web, period. So the fact that you have no access to somebody who can help out, they don't see that as client service or a loss of client service. So that actually helps us maybe segue to a, a later topic, which is you've gone from working for the department to now being a uh, licensed immigration consultant. Mm -hmm. What's that transition been like? Um, there's been good parts and bad parts. I actually like, I, I love the work I, and it's really nice to be able to choose my clients and, and to try to, you know, my, my goal is on this side is to try to build credibility and take cases I believe in. doesn't mean they'll get approved, but, but it's also really frustrating. It was really interesting to me, the impact, um, with people that I knew inside the department. I had people who unfriended me on Facebook. I have other people who have said, if I can help in any way, I will. They, you know, aside from obviously looking at cases because they can get in big trouble yeah, yeah. looking at cases, but policy stuff, people tell me sometimes it changes, you know, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Um, so I like working on this side better for a number of reasons. Yeah. I wish I'd done it sooner. It's the big pensions. Um, yeah, the country was nice. <laughs> and the benefits, and the benefits. So, and, and my husband's self-employed, so it was always good to have one income yeah. that we knew was kind of set in stone. But Aside uh, from a, like, obviously providing a very strong grounding in the law, does the department 
provide any training that prepared you for private practice? No, not at all. Not at all. That's been that the administrative stuff has been my biggest challenge and I'm getting there after two years, but yeah, yeah, for sure. So if there's anyone listening, who's considering a similar move, any tips? Um, actually the best tip came from your partner, which was Ryan. And he said, start really slow. He said, don't, don't do a website right away. You know, enough people know you that you'll get word of mouth referrals, which is what's happened. I still don't have a website. And, um, that was probably the best. I, I had that from a couple of people and, and Richard Curlin gave me a couple of ideas on how to sort of get my name out there. And, and it was like, you know, the, I do the public stuff yeah. and things like this. I teach, I do public speaking. I, you know, so, so my profile is there, but I try to keep it. It, it was a soft, soft beginning and it continues to be a soft growth. <laughs> yeah. Have you had any, uh, Without naming names, inquiries from people who like have sought your advice on leaving government to go into private practice. Yeah, I've talked to a few people, and yeah. I've I've also talked to. It, it, I don't know how people that have no background in this do it because unlike in immigration, in yeah, like people yeah. that come from completely different backgrounds, because there's no mentoring program. There's nothing like what you know the lawyers do with articling. Uh, it, it's just crazy, and and that's it would be so easy to make mistakes. I have trouble finding things on the website and sometimes the only reason I find them is I know they're there. Like I know somewhere it's there yeah, and, and, I, and I want to find it. So somebody, even with the training, I mean, it's just, it's so, I know, I know of a lot of people that try to do it for a year or two and just drop out of it because it's so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for the consultants, the ones yeah. that I find are, are, are successful or do a good job are the ones that very narrowly, uh, you know, the ones who do study permits through Beijing. And yeah. that's all they do and they know it inside out yeah. and I, I have to say that some of them are much more competent to a study permit in Beijing than I am in the sense yes. that they understand how Beijing works they understand what needs to go into a study permit application um, once you start having this broad practice and I mean both of us you know teaching in the in the consultants yeah. course I I would be very concerned about students going straight from the refugee module into a refugee hearing oh, me too. and Scary. I can't imagine what that would be like for yeah. counsel or anybody involved I mean if, if you were if you went straight from five sessions with Dan McLeod and I and walked into a refugee hearing, um, it would be a nightmare. Oh yeah. And so I can't imagine. I mean, I imagine it would be the same thing in other areas uh, as well. But it's um, yeah. Which leads me to my second point: find a bunch of mentors or uh, and also colleagues that work in the same field. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have these guys that I go to when I have a question. Meaning Larry Rosenberg, and they're mine, so I'm not sharing. <laughs> Um, but also I have several colleagues that are consultants that have been doing it for a long time too because it's a slightly different you know approach and so I have half a dozen people I go to I think even the most senior lawyers also go to people all the time as well like it is such a fast changing I get the odd call from you guys yeah Yeah. Well, we've all got our, our networks yeah. of people. For yeah. me, I've got those level, the level of people like Steve, who I can call up and ask the most stupid questions to, and be like, Steve, what form do I need to fill in for this? Uh, yeah. In the sense the that both forms, of us both yeah, of us yeah. go back and forth. And then there's the people, you know, that I, I definitely will ask a few people before I try to get Lauren to Lauren Waldman to, to respond <laughs> or Barb Jackman to respond to one of my questions. But you know, there, there will come a point when I'll just go to someone like Lauren or, or Barb uh, and. Uh, hash out the more yeah, complex thing, and you, you have to have those. Uh, yeah, for sure. um, uh, and don't talk to me. I'm not a detailed person, so that's been a real struggle learning to because I don't hire anybody to work for me at this point. Someday, maybe. So I fill out or I help them. I don't fill them out. My clients fill them out, but I go over them, and I'm so not a detailed person. So that's yeah. been a struggle for me too, like just having to pay attention to the. I'm, I've always been a big picture person, and I'd like to get back to the place where I can be ultimately. So. Yeah, and the department seems to be shifting most of the solicitor side work away from big picture to very nitpicky, yeah. um, nitpicky. I think it'll go full circle if I was going to make a prediction that something will happen. They'll go back to having regions. I mean, I think personally, I'm very biased on this though, but personally I think you need strong regional presence because every region is so different. Like yeah. you need to know what the issues are in Vancouver versus what the issues are in Toronto. Well, yeah, and... Uh, on the, on the foreign worker context, I'll never Absolutely. I had a uh, employer in Saskatchewan have their interview in Vancouver and there was a good, and it really frustrated the employer because it's this whole, you have to demonstrate a labor shortage and it took about 
five to six questions for it to be established where in Saskatoon Even this business was located because they're trying to lend them. Have you ever been to Saskatoon? And it actually got a little between the employer and the debt. Have you ever been to Saskatoon? No. And you're telling, you're, you're going to assess what the shortage is here and it's yeah. without the regional presence no, that it can be. Now on the temporary foreign worker program, um, oh, yeah, the, uh, the HUMA committee, I can't remember what HUMA stands for. It's, uh, anyway, the HUMA committee in parliament uh, released its report on what reforms it wants to see to the temporary foreign worker program. And there were three in particular that I thought were interesting. And just to get uh, quick preliminary thoughts, I, none of us have done in-depth uh, no. consideration of what's in the report, I think. But the first was that the department implement a trusted traveler program with the objective of reducing processing times for those who demonstrated trustworthiness in the foreign worker program. So I looked it up oh. very quickly. It's the uh, Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skills, and Social Development and the Status of Persons with Disabilities. And okay. I can't believe you didn't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. I so didn't know there was a D so, in so Huma. Uh, like, so this is all linked to persons with disabilities? Or? No, oh, I think it's just a broad committee. Okay, broad committee. But uh, I still don't know how there's a D in Huma for, for disabilities. Okay. But um, so... Thoughts on a trusted traveler or a trusted employer program? It's not a new concept. They've done it Well, that's it before, exactly what yeah. I thought. They did it before and yeah. it uh, led to such problems that they implemented the new extremely restrictive regime. I, I mean, the other thing it does is, is it significantly benefits large employers. Yes. yes. So like the, yes. the SNC-Lavalins of the world um, are likely to be able to maintain, establish and maintain trustworthiness while your small employer in Prince George uh, is yeah. unlikely to have a series of foreign workers that would establish that track. And just given the way the system often works, it's not a case of everybody right now is at three weeks if we bring this in. Uh, the slowest will be three weeks and the trusted people will be 48 hours. It'll be the trusted people will be at 48 hours and months for new companies that arguably need the program as much. Yeah. Exact suggestion two was getting rid of employer specific work permits was a recommendation that they made. So that instead work permits wouldn't be based by employer, but instead be based on geographic region and occupation. That's an interesting concept. I, I can't see how that would ever fly with the public and voters. Yeah, I, I understand why they I want to the change because people change jobs. But if the whole idea, I mean, with I don't know how they practically do it with wage ranges at what jobs were advertised at and... Yeah. I think the yeah the public as I well. Think, I think a better way to go, and there was at one point an operational bulletin on this. And I know they've tried it. Is the group of employers approach? Yeah, but even there, it still wouldn't prevent like, say, a cook at a restaurant, and the restaurant closes, and all of a sudden they got to go scramble to get a new. No, uh, but it would it would certainly benefit certain industries that are really hurting. Yeah, I'm doing getting rid of employer specific work permits. I mean, I, I think it's a, in terms of the. Uh, there's always going to be that tension in the foreign in the foreign worker programs where you're trying to balance this need or desire to have a protected labor market. I mean, yeah. essentially, you're talking about a, a protected market uh, and an artificially inflated um, wages on a global scale. And I mean, that's what Canada is essentially trying to protect. And it's really just a question of none, none of these, there are not shortages in any profession in Canada if you're willing to pay market <laughs> wages. Yeah. If you paid $150,000 a year for live-in caregivers, there would be a lineup out the door for live-in caregivers. So when you talk about the market, you know, the market can't meet this need, the market doesn't want to meet the need. People don't want to pay $150,000 a year for a live-in caregiver. And ultimately, we decide that certain 
that certain professions ought to be paid at certain wages or yeah. that there's a there's an ability to pay at a certain wage. We can't afford to pay people $20 an hour to pick blueberries because otherwise blueberries would cost $20 right. a yeah. bushel or whatever. To and that's part of also uh, the big debate of low-skilled versus, like, should there be LMO or LMIAs for low-skilled positions? Because I can understand it for a, a lot of high-skilled positions where I genuinely don't think there are people in Canada can do it, or it would take quite a while to train someone to do it. Very specialized aeronautics, engineering type positions, but for the bulk of them, I mean, you give the berry picking, cooks, um, positions that is easier, food service supervisors. Seasonal work's another oh. one that becomes really problematic. Yeah. But if you paid Swiss or Norwegian wages in the McDonald's in Prince George, you'd have a lineup out the door for people signing up for those jobs. Yeah. And I mean, I said you would food also service have... supervisors is one of these weird, it's, a, it's considered a very skilled job, but it's um, in the way that the system's currently divided. Uh, but it is one where I agree, like that's, that's much more of a wage. There would be a lot more people willing to go in if the market determined what wages would be. I actually think that one of uh, former Minister Kenny's better statements was when asked at a CBA conference um, about restrictions on LMIAs and making it difficult, he said, well, why are we subsidizing businesses that are either locating in the middle of nowhere where there's no employees or... Uh, don't want to pay what the market's willing to pay. Well, and the, the issue is that he looks at it as a subsidy. What it is is a protection. Yeah. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's a labor, it's a protectionist measure to protect the Canadian labor market because there's a belief that Canadian workers should make a lot more than workers anywhere else in the world. And that's, you know, and that's a belief that Canadian, you're not going to change the views of Canadian workers about that anytime soon. Um, but that's at its at its base what this what this is, and so when you talk about how you're going to go about doing that protection, you know I, I can we can quibble about the details and which yeah. industries deserve more protection, which industries deserve less protection. Well, well, and that was I mean just quick the last point was developing more exemptions for certain sectors, um, which gets into again which industries do we want to protect or which industries. Um, do we not necessarily want to do a labor market test for, in addition for wages, just testing the labor market for companies that already have people in mind overseas that they want to bring in? Well, it's also a question of what a lot of what you see in the rhetoric around this is what Canadians are willing to do or want to be doing. Yeah. And it's an interesting, I, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, it's, to say Canadians don't want to do these jobs, right? Like you look at, for example, sanitary workers working for the city. The city, I don't think, has to hire any foreign workers to fill those positions because they're union positions, their their benefits are good, they're they're actually good jobs. It's not it's not work that a lot of Canadians would necessarily want to do or, or dream of doing or or in in a in a sense of does it is it a prestigious job? But it's not, it's decent work, it's very necessary work, and when it's decently paid and you have uh, decent benefits, Canadians are more than willing to do those jobs. And so the question is, is are those jobs necessary or are we willing to recognize the importance of those jobs or are we willing to just give up having, you know, $2 a pint blueberries? Yeah, and it is That's, in the yeah. foreign worker program with its prevailing wage methodology like I, I, I understand it was brought in because they didn't want companies going below certain rates and in some industries those rates may be accurate in others it's become this in certain like maybe the sanitation sector or occupation where that prevailing wage rate is lower than what the market here would pay and where the prevailing I think a lot of people have complaints about where they think it's too high and that the prevailing wage is above what the market here would pay and nobody is doing the job at less than prevailing. But when prevailing is lower than the market, it does provide this ability to now say no one's willing to do it at this rate. The market for an occupation might be 30000 in Canada. If prevailing was done, that it actually did mar match the market, then 
that wage makes sense. Don't go below it. And some of it's just inherent in how broad the prevailing wages are applied to different sectors. But where it does slip under, all of a sudden there is, like if you were a company that saw we need these jobs and that, and that wage that we can now advertise at is way lower than what the market is willing to pay or willing to accept, all of a sudden it becomes a way, it would, it would make little business sense to not go through that program. Well, and it's, the question is, is when you say the market's willing to accept, there are certain industries that are built on wages that are significantly, that are low, that are very low. I yeah, mean, that's the, that sure. is the business model for a yeah. blueberry farm in the lower mainland. I mean, the, the model for running a blueberry farm in the lower mainland is cheap labor. And if you don't have cheap labor, and you see this in California, you see this in Mexico, you see this anywhere else where you have labor intensive agricultural products. The reality is, is that you cannot compete in that market if you don't have cheap labor or a protected market. So in other words, you'll see certain countries where they protect their markets yeah. right. you know, in, in order to maintain a dairy industry or to maintain a, uh, and Canada does it to a certain extent in certain industries and other industries we don't, right? So the protectionism that we see in the egg and, and dairy industries in Canada um, is overt. It's very clear. You, uh, and you maintain certain levels and wages within those, uh, those industries by doing that. It's not, I don't think there are easy answers. And the prevailing wage has always been artificial anyways. And we see it in every area. You have employers that come in and say, well, what are you talking about? Like take long haul truckers, for example. They get paid differently if you're, depending on the number of axles, if you have six, seven, eight, nine axles, you get paid more per mile. If you're driving a reefer truck, if you're driving through the mountains, if you're driving on flat highways, every, the, you get paid differently. And then they say, and everybody gets paid by the mile for long haul truckers. The prevailing wage says everybody gets $22 an hour. $22 an hour is completely artificial in the sense that yeah. not only do they not pay that way in the industry, but not everybody gets paid the same. The guy who's, who's, who's driving around in a hazardous material truck gets paid more than the guy who is driving around with an empty, uh, with yeah. an empty load. And understandably so. If I had to drive around with a, with a truck that could explode, versus a truck that, that's, that's empty, I would want to get paid more. Yeah, I think in the majority of my files, prevailing wage, I guess it does have a desired effect in some cases. Like I do have clients where uh, in order to bring in foreign workers who they've identified that they want to bring in, prevailing wage is higher than what they pay their Canadians. That obviously is going to cause a disconnect. So they wind up actually do raising everyone's wage because they have this foreigner that they want to bring in. On the other extreme, it's completely irrelevant because the prevailing wage is so below what the market rate is that, I mean, you, it just becomes irrelevant to the whole discussion you, you're advertising above it. Although the program, to be fair to uh, ESDC, the LMIA application forms now do say, what is the range that you pay Canadians? And if you are recruiting at a rate that is significantly lower than what you're paying your other staff, it's unlikely that they'll approve that application, notwithstanding the fact that it meets prevailing wage. So the department is addressing the issue, and I, I don't know to what extent that's had an effect, but they are, they, they are aware of the issue. Um, and finally, I think there's two news updates that you wanted to uh, mention. The first, uh, I mentioned earlier that there was a podcast that we recorded uh, that I accidentally deleted. And in that podcast, Peter provided a eloquent summary of a BC uh, Court of Appeal decision on, no, it was the Supreme Court accepting leave of a BC Court of Appeal decision in Badesha on extradition to India. And I think it's timely this week, given that um, it emerged that the current, the Liberal government is negotiating or is started negotiations for an extradition treaty with China. And as soon as I read that, I thought about our accidentally deleted podcast. So maybe if you can quickly uh, provide your eloquent summary on what the issues in Badesha with extraditions to India are. So, so Badesha was a case uh, that deals with 
So it was a, a high-profile case in BC and in India where there was an honor killing in India uh, where somebody was, uh, there was allegations that two individuals, Canadian citizens, were involved in the honor killing in India. And India has sought their extradition from Canada. They went through, and the extradition process, for those of you who are not familiar, it involves two stages. The first stage is a committal hearing where there's a, a judge decides whether or not there's a sufficient case and whether that would be the equivalent of uh, an offense in Canada. And the second stage is a surrender order by the minister. So the minister of justice decides whether or not it would be unjust or oppressive to send someone uh to extradite somebody to another country. And in this case, the minister uh, had, this was the previous minister of justice, had information before him that showed uh, a pattern of torture and abuses and of people in custody in India. And there's well-established uh, documentation from very reputable human rights organizations that this is a problem and an ongoing problem in, in the uh, Indian justice system. Uh, the minister ordered the surrender anyways, uh, and the BC Court of Appeal found that that was not reasonable. In other words, that the, the minister, it, it wasn't a reasonable decision to extradite these people to India, given the evidence uh, of torture and other problems in the Indian justice system. So the minister sought uh, um sought to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, and that matter will be heard, I expect, sometime next year. So there's a number of interesting issues that have arisen in that case, in terms, both in terms of deference uh, and, and how to deal with ministers' decisions in the, in the courts, but also in terms of what it means for Canada to be extraditing people to other countries uh, where they face different levels of risk or where the justice system doesn't work the same. And it's come up this week, uh, as, as Steve raised uh, earlier, because there's been some discussion in the news about Canada signing an, ex an extradition treaty with China. Uh, and there are some definite concerns along similar lines in China with respect to not only the practices within the criminal justice system in China of uh, interrogation and, and other pressures that are put on people. There's a 99.9% conviction rate uh, of people who are charged uh, with offenses in, in China, which um, is somewhat concerning. Uh, but and yet uh, you almost never see a criminal record. Um, any clients from China? Yeah, it's uh, well the the, the the volumes that you uh, or the, the the ways that you can see you don't see a criminal record or you see clean criminal records come back. Right, that's yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's easy to, to get a clean criminal record, uh, a, a, clean, a clean criminal record certificate yeah, you often from certain countries uh, yeah. that may not have. Uh, where there, there, it may be more e easier to get certain documents yeah. from certain bureaucracies than others. Uh, so th those, there's some interesting issues that come up with that, within terms of us signing extradition treaties. And I think that this is something that's going to come up more and more, and that the Supreme Court's dealing with this, I, I think, is an issue that does need to be dealt with as we move into a more globalized world where sending people and, and people committing crimes in other countries uh, from Canada or who are Canadian and go overseas and have committed crimes there and vice versa where you have people who commit crimes in Canada who are overseas and we see a lot of uh, just in the fraud context and in the cyber criminality context this is a huge issue in terms of uh, you have offenders who are in other countries all over the world committing offenses in Canada uh, and that the Canadian authorities are going to seek those people. Well, and with and it's cyber crimes street. especially, I think they, I don't know what the status is, but I remember they were trying to extradite that person from the Netherlands who had cyber bullied a young girl in BC, which I think led to her suicide. And with the internet and the ability to commit crimes remotely that have global impact, it is going to be a growing issue. The other thing that was neat, though, about the China extradition negotiations was the same day that that came out, there was, I don't know if you saw that story, and I think the Globe about how agent, there are all these allegations now that agents from China have been coming, because we don't have an extradition treaty, coming and just threatening fugitives in Canada who have citizenship here. Um, I just thought the timing of the two stories coinciding was neat. 
and may add to the topics that they negotiate during their extradition uh, discussions. I mean, although we do have uh, very active FBI uh, offices in Canada as well, but there, there's more overt cooperation there than here. What appears to be the allegations are that uh, uh, that there's coercion uh, or threats happening. This is something that's been very common from overseas anyways, where yeah. where you see the pressure put on families in China or the, the pressures put on people in different ways to try to get them to voluntarily come back. Um, I don't do extradition law. Do we extradite? Do we have current treaties with any countries that aren't democracies? We have treaties with all with countries all over the world. The uh, and it depends on what you mean by treaties. So there's certain there are bilateral extradition treaties with certain countries. So in other words, we have a series of bilateral uh, um, countries. Most Commonwealth countries, for example, most uh, and so when you say are they democracies, that that's that's a what um, we would fluid like, term. Yeah, like not like oh Saddam got ninety nine percent of the vote. Like functioning uh, Kim, Kim coherent. Jong. Right, functioning coherent democracies. Well, so does that does that include the United States in terms of a functioning coherent democracy? Yeah, I, I would still include the United States. I'd be less <laughs> less like like any like, like for the moment, for anyway. the moment. but uh, less so like a Saudi Arabia or something. Like, do we have with similar countries? So what what we have with a number of countries? So there's there's bilateral extradition treaties, but you don't actually need to have a treaty. So we've extradited people to China. We extradite people to, uh, you know, to a number of different countries that we don't have direct treaties or bilateral treaties with. Other places, so those can be done on a one-off basis. There's a mechanism in the Extradition Act to do an extradition on a one-off basis in any event. The other area where we do have treaties is, for example, the organized crime uh, treaties include extradition provisions in them. So in other words, there's there's a mechanism within the, the broader UN, some of the broader UN treaties on organized crime, for example. So what would be the advantage of a treaty? Well, the advantage of a treaty is just in terms of the, the mechanism within the act uh, by which the, the extradition takes place and that there's a process in place for doing it. So okay. in other words, there's a it can also lower the threshold. So for example, our treaty with the United States lowers the threshold from the one in the act in terms of the maximum provisions. So in other words, the maximum penalties that you need to have to warrant an extradition, there needs to be a, a penalty in Canada of at least two years or whatever the situation might be. With the United States, it's slightly lower. So in theory, you could extradite somebody to Washington State for a breach of probation. You couldn't extradite somebody to Thailand on a breach of probation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then last one, you had detention of children. So we've uh, we've seen a couple of, uh, and, and I've uh, been uh, fortunate to be involved in, in some consultations. CBSA is doing consultations across the, the country right now with respect to the new funding and the uh, announcements by the minister with respect to uh, detention and reducing the need for immigration detention, increasing availabilities of alternatives to detention. Uh, so there's been a lot of discussions around that and there's there's been uh, ongoing uh, discussions as to how to use the uh, 138 million of, of funding that's been earmarked for that. But as well, we saw in this uh, in this past week two things that have come out. Uh, one uh, is a report by the University of Toronto uh, International Human Rights Law um, or Human Rights. Um, uh, uh, Committee, so it's a committee of students and, and others at, at the University of Toronto that did a, a quite a comprehensive study. It's a 70 page uh, study on the detention of minors in uh, Canadian immigration detention. They make some very clear recommendations about the impact, both the impact of the detention of minors directly. So we see two types of minors detained in Canadian immigration detention. One are minors who are detained directly. In other words, the minor themselves is detained. Usually those are teenage, you know, you're talking about 16, 17 year olds for the most part. Um, and they're, they, they can be detained on, on various grounds. It's supposed to be an exceptional remedy. The others are, are the ones who are referred to as guests. Uh, in other words, the parents are detained and the minors are allowed to remain with the parents. 
in the detention center. Um, we only really see this. We see this from time to time in uh, in BC. It's quite rare. They do do it at the, the Burnaby Youth Correction Center, but there you'll see it usually for very short periods of time. But you do have some longer-term detentions in uh, Toronto and Montreal where you have kids uh, who are there with their parents in the detention centers. Um, it's actually quite a, a traumatic uh um, it has very traumatic impact for the kids. The other part that uh, being, I mean, you're talking about places where there's like barbed wire around, guards, the, I mean, it's, it's a very, and I remember that was one of the most striking things that when I first went to the detention center in Laval, Quebec, was to see, a th- there's nothing more disturbing than seeing a three-year-old with their face pre- pressed up against the, the glass with the wires through it, you know, that, that, that kind of reinforced glass. Um, and there's this little playground with a, one of those colorful slides, plastic slides, and it's completely surrounded by coils of barbed wire. And it's one of the most disturbing things that I've, uh, you know, it, it just, you just have a visceral reaction to it. Um, so there is a, a, a very uh, involved discussion of the impact on children. Also the impact on children of separating them from their parents yeah, when you detain children. Pa- or and you so detain the, the parents. Uh, sorry, detain the parents rather. So when you detain a parent and you separate them, the children are taken into uh, um, children, into the ministry's, the ministry's yeah. care, into foster care. Um, the impact on the kids is quite significant. Um, although in, in that sense, I mean, it's... Uh, we see a similar impact, I think, with respect to a deportation, but it's, uh, um, it, it does have a very significant impact on the kids' uh, mental health. In a more positive development, or in a positive development, uh, the Minister um, of Public Safety, so the Canada Border Services Agency, just uh, recently consented. Uh, there was a consent order that came out of uh, the federal court uh, in a case that was coming up through Ontario at the, Le- the Legal Aid Office uh, or the Legal Aid Ontario Office, the Refugee Law Office in Ontario. Um, and the consent order is with respect to consideration of the best interests of the child at the at detention reviews. And so under the regulations, there are a series of things that are considered when deciding whether to detain somebody. And there's always been a question as to whether or not the best interest of the child was something that should be considered. It's not explicitly listed. And there was some um, lack of clarity, shall we say. There had been some decisions from the board where it had been considered, but there wasn't any clarity. The minister consented to the fact that the best interest of the child is to be considered and agreed to send out directions to directives to all of its officers that the position there to take before the board is that best interest of the child is a valid consideration under the regulations. And it's not I a still, reported case. We'll put it up on the Borderlines website because I know people yeah. have been asked to distribute it. So yes, and, and I think that it should be, uh, I think it's a case that, that should be distributed. I still think that it need, the, the regulations need to be fixed and that that needs to be added explicitly into the regulations. Uh, but this is a good interim measure, uh, and so it's a positive development. Just to be clear, considered doesn't mean determinative um, no. to those who are wondering if this means that any time now every child or parent uh, is going to be released if they have a child who would otherwise be in detention. It just means that the Immigration Refugee Board has the ability to consider it. Well, Danny, thank you for joining us today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure and insightful for all of us. Uh, so thank you very much for, uh, for a great discussion. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll have you on in the future. Anytime. Uh, thank you for joining us on Borderlines uh, today. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at borderlines.ca. Thank you to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music, and to our podmaster, Meredith Baker, who's uh, recently uh, come on to help us try to figure out the technical side of this, which uh, I'm sure all of our listeners are going to appreciate.